0: This is the first time that we've said hello and talked to each other since what was actually the last Cubs home win of the regular season. This oh, year. that is
1: that is so depressing. That yeah. is so yeah. depressing.
0: Yeah, that, uh, Dude, that you,
1: was that was a so couple fun. weeks from the end of the season, wasn't it?
0: Right. Right. And they still oh. have, you know, the six games to go on the homestand. And I remember as we were uh, Kevin McCaffrey and I were headed uh, out to the uh, Nisei Lounge to meet you guys after for the postgame celebratory Toast to what we had just witnessed. I remember saying to him that, yeah, this was a fun night, uh, but it's also, you know, kind of has that it has that it has that. that. So there's I, I think I said that there's a sense of melancholy in the air and yeah. little did yeah. I know yeah. that, uh, yeah, that melancholy was about to crash down on all of us.
1: Man, you know, and that is such a great event and so well done. And it's so nice to see everybody and put everybody together, you know, that personal, like, I actually can hug you and, you know, and just hang out. And it's nice to just be around everyone. It's such a great event and so, like, the capstone of my year. And then to have that kind of gray cloud hanging over us that is what inevitably is the end of the Cubs season is kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I I don't think about it in the moment because I am so hung up on the fact that it is such a great time, but yeah, I mean, on the train ride home, it's definitely starting to sink in that, like, you know, I'm probably not going to see these guys in November. Like I hoped I would. Right.
0: Right. And and for you, especially since you're making the trip up from St. Louis, it's a special thing. And for me that the gray cloud is kind of the sense of since I'm 10 minutes away from the park that, yeah, I've been doing this for the better part of the past five months. And now, yeah, it's kind of going to stop for half a year as, as it turns to cold and bleak winter here. Uh, And yeah, social media nights, I, I, I kind of, your reflection on that make me think that maybe they do it at that point in mid to late September, because it's kind of sending the message to all the fans on Twitter that, Hey, you've got one chance to actually get out of the house and interact with each other in person, as opposed to, constantly liking and retweeting and, and never actually saying hello or, or, God forbid, giving each other hugs when you see each other. So that's, yeah, that's a, a special night, as you say.
1: Well, and kind of a, a take on that is, um, you know, I live in St. Louis, so I see a lot of the promotions and the marketing that the Cardinals do, obviously, because I am their target in this city. Um <laughs> They don't, they don't do, they don't have an online presence like the Chicago Cubs do. They don't have, not to say that I would even, you know, be a part of it if they did. But I mean, there's just nothing like The Cubs fan base online. I mean, there are so many knowledgeable and well read fans out there that we interact with on a daily basis and like make me better at talking about baseball and make me think about things that I never thought before and sometimes put me in check when, you know, sometimes that's the case or vice versa. You just don't see that in other cities. And especially here in St. Louis, like when I mentioned to my friends in the media here in St. Louis that they do a social media night, everybody, the comment is always the Cardinals need to do something like that? They need to have something like that, but yeah, they 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 probably every team should bring those Absolutely. people together and you know give them the opportunity to meet and shake hands. But I just don't think that it would be anything close to what the Chicago Cubs online presence is. It's just it's unreal to me, and on a daily basis, and even in the off season, the dead of December, you know, you can go online right now and see, um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, <laughs> it's just it's. Right, yeah. It, it, I mean, if, for good reason, I guess, at this point, yeah.
0: right? Yep. Yeah, justifiable panic, but yeah, panic nonetheless. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, I think panic is the best note to start uh, the podcast on. So, hey, everybody, <laughs> welcome to Three Strikes, You're Out, uh, Episode 8, the Andre Dawson episode. I am pleased to be joined by the other voice on the end of the podcast this week, uh, my good friend, Andy cruz Vanasek of the Cup of Cubby Blue podcast. Uh, I have now punched my uh punched my cup of cubby blue frequent guest card complete i get a free sub for that as well (laughs) Andy is also one of my uh uh, one of my colleagues on cubs den she has just joined up with that and uh, is one of the most active and delightful members of cubs twitter so andy thanks for joining me today
1: well thank you for the compliments i'm gonna take those with me when i leave so i'm putting them in my back pocket as we speak thank you ken (laughs)
0: <laughs> I am giving you all the compliments in lieu of any compliments that might go to anyone affiliated with the Cubs front office, because you deserve all of them and they deserve none at this point. I think. Uh, Amen. Yeah, as as a, a quick intro to the episode here that uh, I, I'm trying as I'm establishing this podcast on the Outsports Podcast Network, I guess I got to throw that out there as well. My name is Ken Schultz. I'm a correspondent for Outsports Uh Guest contributor to Baseball Prospectus and occasional recapper for Cubs Den, and one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast, you might have noticed along the way, if those of you my frequent listener, I'll use the singular tense here, is that uh, I'm trying to, you know, touch base with most of baseball, not just my own, you know, Cubs-centric baseball world, but every now and again there comes a week where I just gotta talk to a Cub fan and get virtual hugs because, damn it, I need it. And Andy Cruz Vanasek, this is the week where I need that more than most. Uh, <laughs> so we are going to dive right in to uh, Chris Bryant, trading, yay or nay, what say you? So I've had to answer this
1: question more times than I'm comfortable even telling you in the past two weeks, um, two months for that matter, because it's been, it's been talked about for a while. I am going with my Cubs loving heart on this one, and, and I am definitely a nay. Um I understand the business side of it. I understand why people think it's for the best in the long term. I understand that um I do I work in the financial industry so I am actually kind of a smart person, but I don't want to <laughs> think with my business brain in this situation. I want to think with my cubs loving heart. So mm. I'm definitely not a fan of this. Um I just think and we've talked about this at length in a couple different podcasts. Um it's you're making a a crater to fill
0: a hole. If that makes sense, yep. um, <laughs> and how the trying to do? Yes,
1: yes. I just I just don't think that. We are not in a rebuild mode. I don't understand why we are hitting the rebuild button. I don't get that. I I get that we are missing pieces. I get that. I get that we need to fill in those pieces the best way we can, the most economical way that we can. But that means, guess what, guys? You want to play with teams like the Yankees. You want to play with teams like the Dodgers. You got to open the checkbook. You got to pay the taxes. You got to sign the contracts because you're only going to make us worse off by creating that hole, that crater, if you will.
0: Yeah, especially when you are in this, quote-unquote, window of contention and still right in the middle of it with all of these players that you dedicated so much of this rebuild, rebuild to in the prime of their careers, both age-wise and, for the most part, performance-wise as well. And that is something that, I mean, this is the end product of a maybe decade long process at this point. And to try to cut it short with the idea that you can extend it somehow by trading your very best player is to my mind asinine. And I just don't think there's any such thing as a good return for Chris Bryant at this point. That when you were talking about, and I'm going to just throw out a couple of quick random numbers and we can go to actual discussion after that. But uh, I think it was at the Cubs Live Twitter account, just kind of did a nice summary of what the past five years have been. Since 2015, Chris Bryant, quick slash line, 284, 385, 516, 138 home runs, most home runs ever by a Cub in the first five years. And if you like going by super advanced stats, 27.8. Uh, fan Fangraphs war third most since 2015 behind a couple guys named Mike Trout and Mookie Betts this is not a guy that you get rid of at the first opportunity and i i can't help but think that that so many of the galaxy brain members of cubs twitter that are that are so on board with the idea that trading him is going to extend the window that they they're caught in the mindsets of that you that it's always the smart move to sell two years in advance of free agency. And for a player that transcends like Chris Bryant does, I can't believe that that's the case, that that's someone you want to hang on to as long as you possibly can and take advantage of his athletic prime when you have that control of him. And and here's the, the thing that really drives me nuts about this is that so many people act like it's against the rules somehow that you won't be able to sign him once he hits free agency. No, no. It, it is actually possible that if a player hits free agency, you can still re-sign him, bring him on board. It just happened to Steven Strasberg. And uh, I, I keep trying to arrive at a question to help spring the next part of our conversation, but but uh, the part of my mind that just kind of wants to scream into the void is going <laughs> full Lewis Black now at this point. Uh, so. It's okay,
1: because I feel the exact same way, and like you saw me nodding my head the entire time you were speaking, because... Um, you know, it is it is extremely frustrating because, yeah, I, I mean, you see a lot of mixed you see both sides of it. You see the media actually has to be very matter of fact with it. Um, and I'm always quick to turn around and ask, you know, do you think this is a viable solution? Do you think this is actually going to help us in the amount of time that we need the help? Like, I just read earlier that the Cubs have basically put a price tag on him. They want two pitching prospects and a bat. And that will get him. Are you freaking serious? Are you serious? What are these two pitching prospects going to do for us in 2020? Yeah. Except now we have a hole at third to figure out. Besides the center field, besides the leadoff, besides second base, we have a hole to figure out at third now. Or or left, wherever, or wherever he's going to play. Left, right, center, third, whatever. I mean, it just, to me, it's asinine that it's even a discussion. And people think that, you know, this is the guy who was – you know, MVP in, um what was it, in the minors? Was he MVP in yep. the minors? And then came up okay. the next year, was rookie of the year, MVP the next year. Like, I mean, obviously the talent is there. We've not seen the Chris Bryant that we thought we we would see in 2018, 2019, obviously. We're all kind of a little frustrated with that. But he set the bar so high in his first two seasons that we are still not grasping the fact that he was still good in those seasons. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. working through injuries, working through his ups and downs, his struggles at the plate. You know, we, we saw him do that. Um, but he's still the talent is there. That's that's my problem. That's what I'm having a hard time swallowing because you don't just walk away from talent like there. There like that. That is such that is the small percentage of talent that you'll ever see on your team. And you still have two more years. I mean, depending on what the outcome of the grievance is, but guessing two more years of control of him. Why let him walk? Why let him? You know, or why trade him to to someone else for two prospects and a bat? Like it just it blows my mind. It it just yeah. blows my mind. I, I'm yeah. I'm I'm as frustrated now. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, and as you referenced uh, that the Cubs are, as I said, are, uh, and I think Theo has said at this point that they're waiting on the grievance, the service time grievance, to be resolved, is to determine what their next move is with him, so that, to determine whether he has two years of control or one year of control left. And honestly, at this point, I am rooting for the grievance to take as goddamn long as humanly possible. <laughs> if you want to extend yeah. this grievance to spring training, go for it. I, I, go arbitrator. Go in prison. And please, yes. Yeah. All-star
1: all break, and, Ken. All-star break. Can I get an all-star break? <laughs>
0: yes, yes. I, 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 I root for bureaucratic nightmare and and Mike and fires <laughs> and backups. And, and plagues of locusts visiting upon wherever this arbitrator lives, whatever you can do. But, uh, yeah, I, I call upon the, the, the biblical God of the Old Testament. Look down <laughs> at this arbitrator's house. Don't go the full 10 plagues, but if you want to know maybe like six or seven, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so great. <laughs> there, somewhere else I want, to, with, with your point before, I, I again. Every every one of my points with this just kind of ends in in a scream or a rant. So I, I guess kind of jumping off of this topic a little bit, that with, when situations like this are happening, and, and this follows the nightmare of last offseason, which was just total inaction, uh, I can't help but flashback to, I don't know if you remember the Joe Ricketts quote that was leaked out from... A random speech he gave to some weird businessman's evil people luncheon from like 2014 or 2015 talking about his motivation in funding his family's purchase of the Cubs. But whenever a situation like this arises that my mind always goes back and and I wrote it down here and I'll I'll read it to you mostly in full. Joe Ricketts talking uh, to this this luncheon of businessmen about his son, Tom Ricketts, the Cubs' controlling general partner, proposing that the family invest in the team. And Joe, asking his audience uh, rhetorically, why would I want to buy a baseball team or any sports team? I'm not a fan. I'm a, I'm not a spectator. And he, Tom Ricketts, said, I'll tell you, Dad, they sell every ticket, every game, win or lose. And Joe Ricketts says, I said, now you've got my interest. And situations like this with Chris Bryant, where it is such a transparent business move over any kind of rational baseball move. Uh, following last offseason, where they signed Daniel Descalso and called it a day. And it makes me wonder that is Joe Ricketts perhaps putting more control over his son's activity or is, is Tom somehow trying to live up to some standard his father has set for business? Because this is not at all, the 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 Ricketts family approach to baseball that seems to be taking place from the moment they started contending in 2015 up until the 2018 offseason uh, do you ever get that that kind of fear that that the the business side of the Cubs is is taking over what what should be uh, the baseball side in the prime of, of this window
1: hundred percent. I mean, you kind of look at it from the the point of how invested are the Rickets as far as um, obviously not monetarily because we know they're quite invested in the Cubs. Yeah. But I mean, like as a family, as a team, you know, and I know it's a business to own a baseball team. That is a business. So it's not important whether or not they are invested in their product. It should be. But. If they're making money, it really, you know, it really doesn't matter. So, yeah, of course, I think about this daily when I think about what the lack of what they're spending, the lack of what feels like they're caring about what this on the field product looks like, about how they're performing, about who's running the show, about the talent that they sign in the offseason, like 2019 and Daniel Descausa or 2018. Um which still makes my stomach turn because you're talking about a hundred billion dollar team, you know, that can't find money to sign talent. And I feel horrible saying that, but Daniel Descalzo is not meant to be on this roster. <laughs> just not. not on, let's just say, it. Oh, yeah. Jeez, I, I, I hate saying things like that because, you know, I, I'm, I obviously am not a professional baseball player, but you know what I mean? It's just so aggravating because you think about it and All I can picture is Tom Rickett sitting there like counting his hundreds and saying they're going to buy tickets whether we suck or whether we don't. And really, I know that's what you're getting at. That's basically what, you know, how we feel as Cubs fans watching the lack of activity and the lack of spending when we, you know, bust our humps to to pay for these hundred dollar tickets to a Wednesday night game against the Cincinnati Reds. You know, so. Mm It's it to me, it's infuriating, it's frustrating, it's really hard to swallow. And you kind of also wonder where we would be right now and how th- the front office is acting and how the the off season would be going for us if we hadn't won in 2016. Because they yeah, I feel was- like that was a huge box that they checked off their list and now they can kind of coast, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it's 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 hard to think about it that way because obviously we're diehards. We're people that live and breathe baseball. and it's hard to think of anyone not caring whether or not we're good. When we have such a great opportunity right now, such good talent, why not go over the top and and secure? you know, what could be a, a good team, a great team. Um, it's hard to even fathom that that's the way anybody would think. But yes, I mean, it's definitely out there and it it sucks. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, I get the bad feeling that if, uh, if in your scenario, if the Cubs had not won in 2016, where would we be in this present day? And I got to think it would feel a lot like, you know, early 90s Cubs, to be honest, mm. the days where, you know, a few years removed from, you know, a division championship that got everyone excited and spiked t- attendance for the next few years. And ownerships would still decide something like the, whatever the modern equivalent of uh, Greg Maddox wants five years. Ah, the hell with that. We got Jose Guzman and Candy Maldonado. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, the Rickets, the Cubs' ownership will always, in a way, be haunted by the organizational memory of decades of ownership mentality of exactly like what you just described, that the fans are always going to show up and buy tickets. So we really don't need to go full bore and in investing in this team. That's the mentality that, you know, marked the tribune for the 30 years that they owned the Cubs. And it certainly was the motto of PK Wrigley. And even in the days back when people didn't buy tickets, he still operated that way. My dad will tell me uh, once every three or four months loves to relate the story of his days growing up in the 1950s watching the Cubs as a kid. And they would be advertising games on WGN on the afternoon kids show called Kukla, Fran and Ollie, which is a delightful 1950s kids show name to me, uh, where Fran Allison, this old Chicago children's host, would interrupt the show and uh, announce, and remember, everyone, go to Wrigley Field this afternoon. Have a picnic. Enjoy the ballpark. And my dad always emphasizes, never once mentioned the team because that's that's what the Cubs were trying to sell in those days. And that's what they sold throughout you know the 80s, 90s, the 2000s, beautiful Wrigley Field, the friendly confines. And it's really only been in the past three, four, five years where you've gotten the sense that it's been entirely focused on the team and what the team is doing. And and there's always that fear that the Cubs are going to backslide into that mentality. And, and I think that even though the Ricketts are spending substantially in terms of total payroll, when they don't go all out to kind of keep the excitement going along with this team, you get that that bad flashback of PK Wrigley in the Tribune. And um, to, to that point as well, uh, I think it's also a very short-sighted focus that's only on this specific year's payroll and this specific year's budget, because I, I also look at it two different ways that after the season, we know that the Cubs are, are getting John Lester and Tyler Chatwood off the payroll, which is got what a solid 30 million at least at this point. Right.
1: Oh yeah. At least. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're telling me that you can't operate and you can't negotiate a contract around that 30 million you have to spend this year, but is going to suddenly be free for the foreseeable future to come. You can't work around that to sign somebody like that. That strikes me as really bad business in general. Well,
1: yeah. And I mean, you look at some of the deals that have been made and some of the things that Theo has had his hands in. And um, to me, it just you know, I feel like there's a lack of trying. I mean, I know obviously there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we'll never know about, but you just kind of feel like the attitude is very carefree and very laid back right now. And I kind of feel like um, he's to the point now, and I just read a quote, like hopping on with you, that was on Twitter. I believe Jesse Rogers quoted Theo. And basically I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of, um about not trying to extend Rizzo he was saying that he understood there was going to be hurt feelings and you know it's not always high fives and celebrations and you know it, it right now that's just the way it is and I'm like I mean I understand it's a business I get it's a business but these guys have been a part of this team and one of the most successful teams that has ever worn the Cubs uniform. So I feel very disrespected for them that he would make a comment like that. And Mm -hmm. um, I get that things have to change and people need to produce. And when it comes down to it, the the people that are on the team to do what they need to do need to do that, need to do what they're getting paid. But that's something you can take up in your office with them, like as you do every year. To say something like that, I just feel like that's very disrespectful and very kind of, eh, we got to, you know, we got to do what we got to do, eh, you know, and especially for somebody like Anthony Rizzo and and even Chris Bryant, you feel very disrespected for them. Um, like I said, I know it's a business. I get that. I do. And I guess, you know, part of me gets very emotionally attached to the players and you feel like a certain you owe them something like, you know, like they've done so much for us in our fandom over the past couple of years, you know, you just hate to see it fizzle out like this and you kind of feel like that's the case you feel like that window is you know closing a lot faster than it was last year and it's that you know fire is fizzling out a little bit so hopefully I'm wrong and things make a turn but right now it just it's hard to feel good about the state of the Cubs
0: yeah it it, and it, it does in the case of Rizzo have like with Bryant and like with Javi Baez who we'll talk about in a second uh, it does at least have two years to make a turnaround, and it should have two years to make a turnaround for all of them. Uh, it, it really does kind of feel like uh, what you're describing is goes against the Cubs' way, doesn't it, a little bit, that, uh, that your character counts until we actually kind of got to step up mm-hmm. and make you or compensate you properly for what you've done. and, and it, it, it almost sounds if if uh, I can channel my inner fake Chris Rock for a minute, it's the Cubs' way until we got to pay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's yes it's so very, true That this rock uh <laughs> oh chris rock vibe to that but that that's the voice that that pops into my head with that but uh, theo uh, to to what you to what you just uh, mentioned theo approaches baseball seemingly almost all the time from a very very pragmatic standpoint that mm-hmm. he does not get emotionally attached to too many guys and and sometimes to his credit, sometimes he is absolutely correct about that, that in the case of uh, Jake Arietta for instance, that he knew you had given Arrieta had given the Cubs five of the most amazing years of any pitcher in this team's history and is historically one of the most important hit pitchers who's ever towed the slab for the Cubs. But when it came time to deciding, do I want to spend my money on Jake Arietta or you Darvish, Theo said, yeah, give me the guy whose peripherals still indicate that he's kind of close to pitching in his prime. And right now, that absolutely looks to be the correct choice. And it's similar to back when he was GM of the Red Sox. And in kind of the most famous instance of that, in my mind, following their historic 2004 curse-breaking world championship season, they had to decide, are we going to re-sign Pedro Martinez, who— is one of the people most connected to the very heart of that franchise. And Theo looked at his age and looked at the way his numbers were declining and said, yeah, I'm not comfortable committing more than a couple years to that. And Pedro went to the Mets, had one great year, and then got injured for the rest of his time there. So I I do understand why Theo sometimes makes makes that decision. But to counter that point and to kind of, again, go back to what you're saying, when you've got the very heart and soul of the 2016 Cubs team that transformed all of our baseball lives for for the better in so many ways. When you've got Bryant, Rizzo and Javi Baez, there's I, I don't think I can separate the emotional component from from the uh, the business components in terms of desire to lock them up to long term extensions. I think. All three of those guys, you've got to make Cubs for as long as you can, because there is I am emotionally imprinted on all three of those guys. And I don't ever want to see any of them in other uniforms. I I know that business wise, that will probably happen at some point, especially with a Boris client like Bryant. But even so, if you can just give him one extension, I think that that would be worth enough emotional satisfaction for me to know that he's going to spend the majority of his time in Wrigley Field and having us cheer for him for 162 days a year Uh, and to oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, I was just going to, I was just going to add my two cents about Scott Boris and how I feel like he is ruining baseball and my life. So, um, (laughs) Yeah, I it's just you know, it's really sad and it's frustrating. And you know, I'm sure you've seen my my tweets about this. I just don't understand the whole super agent philosophy. I understand he has a job to do just like anyone else. But I feel like Scott Boris is single handedly changing baseball and not exactly for the good. Um, and it it's you know, it sucks, especially when you have so many guys that you love and want to see in the Cubs uniform you know, hiring him to represent them. Like somebody like Nicholas Cassianos, who is probably not going to be back in a Cubs uniform. I don't know that that's fully to blame on Scott Boris, but it certainly doesn't help matters. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's tough to watch the non-base, non-baseball base non elements of baseball control the game. And, and really, you know, when it comes down to it, you can argue that point on either side of it, but I just feel like there's just too many things Things that outside people who don't even play the game control that actually, you know, ends up controlling the outcome of the game itself. And it, it, it sucks because, you know, I'm somebody that comes from the point of I played softball my entire life. I played in college. I still play. So I look at it more from a player standpoint because that's what I'm familiar with. And that's the shoes I walk in. So it's really hard to see somebody like Scott Boris walk up with a clipboard and a pen and think he's important and run the show and control everybody's wallets and pens. And that's you know that's what what we' what's dictating who we're cheering for and on what team. So that part to me is just such a nuisance and I get so aggravated by that. And the more I think about it, my blood just boils. It, 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 but you know it's, it's one of those things you just have to accept because obviously I have no control over it, but if I did, that would be a wonderful day.
0: And yeah, I, I I certainly and totally understand where you're coming from. It's 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 good to hear that perspective from someone who has that that play, playing uh, in the game background for as long as you did. And I, I kind of approach it a little differently. That uh, I I figured out that I really have nowhere close to the talent required to play baseball in fifth grade when other kids starting going through puberty and pitching at that point. <laughs> uh, so for the past 30 years of my life, I've only approached baseball with a clipboard and a pen. Uh, <laughs> So <laughs> I, have, I have two mindsets uh, towards Scott Boris, one of which agrees with you and one of which politely dissents. The part that agrees with me is, of course, the Cub fan part that anytime he represents a Nick Castellanos or a Chris Bryants, part of me goes, oh, man, I kind of wish that they were represented with someone who is a little easier to deal with. There is also a big part of me, though, that is extremely pro-labor, pro-player, and loves to see the owners lose as much as I can. And that part of me as much as Scott Boris is a pompous ass roots heavily for him to, to drag the owners through the mud as possible, as as much as possible. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I have a, a mental conflict when it comes to that, that, uh, I, as I say, desperately want Bryant to re-sign with the Cubs, but man, I also want to see him take the rickets for a ride as much as he can. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there is, is, is that, that, that inner war within me that that's being fought over Scott Boris.
1: I think I am. Yes. And I appreciate that, that you bring that up because obviously the owners, um, you know, that's a conversation that could go on for hours talking about the, the, the wrongs of the owners and how they treat their players. And, you know, obviously a lot of that has gotten sorted out in the collective bargaining agreement and all the players association and all that stuff. They've done a very good job of making sure that stuff is right and fair. And they continue to do that, so I lose that perspective a little bit. But yes, that's 100% true. Chris Bryant is worth a lot of money. Um, these owners sit back in their suites with their leather seats, and in the dead of summer, and you know what I mean. It, it's just it's nice, yes, to definitely see them write the big checks every once in a while, and um, and to people that deserve it. Um, I just kind of feel like we're in a situation where we're being told and we're being played and um, what's going to happen are three completely different things. So it's just, it's, it's aggravating and it's frustrating. There's a lot of people to blame. I feel like it's easier to blame a neutral party, which in this case I think is a Scott Boris, because obviously you don't want to blame your team. You don't want to blame the front office because they have done enough to give us that one world championship in 2016 in our lifetime. But you don't want to blame the player because you know, he's probably, I mean, hopefully going to still wear the uniform I and mean, you don't ever want to have hard feelings or vice versa against somebody that, you know, could come back in and, and potentially be a star again for your team. So I think in my case, I like to remove all of those elements that I have, you know, feelings for and blame somebody like Scott Boris, who's just much easier to point the finger at for me.
0: <laughs> and I think Scott Boris himself would say, yes, by all means, please direct your hate at me <laughs> as opposed to the player. that. And I think he would say that's what I'm here for. That that's why I I have such a slimy public persona. That uh, yeah, he wants to take kind of the arrows for all of his guys, so they don't have to deal with it from the fan base on the field. And and it's especially important again for someone like Chris Bryant, who has done so much for this team and who who has hit the most important home run in Cubs history. That I never want to see the fan base ever turn on him. And and you know even we've expressed frustration at Theo at this overall. I still have so much gratitude and admiration for everything that he's done to turn around my perception of what this franchise is and what they're capable of. So yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying there. And, uh, kind of on that topic of, uh, owners sitting back and collecting their money and and the change in baseball history. I think that is the best possible way to segue a little bit off the Cubs, although this will also be have a bit of a Cubs tinge to it uh, as we go into this analysis. How did you respond to Marvin Miller's Hall of Fame election when it was announced on Sunday night? Well,
1: I think it was a long time coming. Uh, it was definitely something that should have happened um, much sooner. Um, I, but I feel like that's case with a lot of people that should be in the hall of fame they should be able to be alive to to accept that honor and it shouldn't take um you know i I guess i don't much about you know if there's hard feelings between major league baseball and marvin miller because marvin miller kind of um he was definitely the play a player's guy like he was one that you know definitely took up for the players and helped them actually wasn't he the first one that formed a collective bargaining agreement yeah as a matter of fact he was um so, yeah, he definitely had a lot to do with fair and just treatment of the players and making sure, like, he got increases for the minimum salary, like his first year. Um, you know, just – he was just such a, a a good person for the players to come along and then to be in the position that he was in for as long as he was in. Um, it's just – it's unfortunate because you see – unfortunate in the sense that you would want him to be alive to accept the honor. He definitely deserved that, Um I I'm happy that it happened finally better late than never, I guess is the way to look at it. He definitely deserved it.
0: Yeah. I might be the only person, uh, on earth who responded this way, but I was watching the MLB network coverage from the winter meetings as the hall of fame announced the, uh, the, I think it's the modern era committee that, uh, that elected Miller and Ted Simmons. Mm -hmm. And as the hall of fame president was opening the envelope and going into the first inductee and I think it was a mention of uh, mention that he used to head the United Steelworkers that made me realize that it was Marvin Miller, and I actually sat there and yelled out, "Fuck yeah!" And- <laughs> Any other baseball fan responding fuck yeah to Marvin Miller getting in the hall of fame. Like I, I, I know I am admittedly anti, as anti-capitalist uh, as, as you will find, but that, that is a special case. Uh, so Bernie 2020 guys, that's what I'm saying. Uh, so. See, we don't,
1: we don't, we don't venture down the politics Avenue much. So I'm unfamiliar with this and a little uncomfortable, but I will say <laughs> I did not respond that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, if, if, if if my politics can make you a little uncomfortable, I've done my job, I think. Exactly.
1: That, uh, I love out- it. I love it.
0: Outsports also tells me that I can't really do politics in my writing, so they don't have control of what I say in the podcast. So, yeah, every now and again, something leaks out there. That's, uh, yeah, I'm secretly Warren, but Bernie's cool, too. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. And what you're saying about the, the Lords of Baseball and their views of Miller, it wasn't just like they didn't like him. It was a hatred that to the very cores of every owner's being, uh, directed in Marvin Miller's direction. And it, that is absolutely why that he was elected posthumously as opposed to going in when he could have been alive because every, the, every veterans committee that has uh, considered him over the years has always been somewhat stacked at least halfway with either owners or general managers who have had to deal with negotiating salaries for players in present day. And every one of those guys to a man loathes what Marvin Miller made the game. And so they they also knew that if they elected him when he was alive and he ventured to Cooperstown to give a speech, he was going to drop a pipe bomb and light that place on fire. And nobody who was in control of the Hall of Fame wanted to deal with that. And, and he realized it, too, uh, as it was going on after missing out in a few elections to the point where I think late in his life, He specifically wrote the Hall of Fame a letter saying, I appreciate that you guys are considering me. That that does mean a lot. Please take my name off the ballot. Stop putting me through this charade. And he's told his family that he does not want them to go to Cooperstown this summer and accept anything in his behalf. And I think they're going to honor that. And and honestly, I I love that he's elected and it is absolutely correct by history. But I also love that part too, that his family is telling the Hall of Fame to go piss piss up a rope. Um, and to, to give you a sense of what Marvin Miller changed in the game, these just a couple of quick facts. And these are just a few things I've learned in the readings that I've done since he was elected. That before Marvin Miller, the guy heading what was considered the Players Association was paid by ownership. That 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 was the level of control owners had over players. And then when Miller was finally... Uh, appointed head of the players' union uh, and found by Robin Roberts uh, in in that era, uh, Marvin Miller had to deal with players who told him that they didn't want to be part of the union because they thought that as soon as they joined a union, they would officially be considered communists, and that would be like unable to wash that stain off. So that was the level of control that players were under uh, that that he had to fight to get them through to the point where they are where they are today. Where he is now making three hundred twenty six million dollars over nine years. And I think that that's an amazing thing that he was able to accomplish. And, uh, I, I, guess that the question that I have, uh, for you also about this is remembering back to what Ron Santo, uh, went through, uh, with the number of years that the hall of fame considered him and, and didn't elect him while he was alive. And then two years after he died, go, uh, uh, going in, how do you remember feeling about when Santo was elected to the hall of fame posthumously?
1: um, I definitely, it was emotional for me. Um, you know, I don't remember my exact thought process. I remember being really pissed off because, again, this was something that was just far too, it took far too long. Um, it, it, it was emotional in the sense that I was so happy that it happened because it was like, thank God, finally, you know, it, it, he is where he belongs, that sort of thing. But it's also just so frustrating because he was somebody that was so captivating to me when I would listen to him on the radio. He was very quirky. And you just, you know, you kind of felt like he was that cool uncle that you always like could just sit and listen to and like hang with. And I had a a connection to him. So like, I kind of remember thinking what he would say if he was alive to accept that honor. And it made me emotional in the sense that like, I don't know. I would have loved to hear that. I don't know exactly what he would have said. And he was always somebody that surprised you with, you know, things here and there. And you had to wonder if maybe he was drinking on the job or, you know, that sort of thing. But it was, it was, it's just something. I just remember thinking, I wish we could hear what, what he would say to accept this. That was something that still kind of, you know, you kind of think about it and you're like, oh, it's so aggravating. Why like he couldn't just get the honor when he was alive, but it was also such a relief that it happened and thank God they got that right because that yeah. definitely needed to happen.
0: Yeah. And ultimately I think that that is the case that whenever they get it right by history, I think that that is the right thing uh, in the big picture, and I, I really love that 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 the image you tried to to get the image of your mind of what would Ronnie be saying in response to this, and we can't picture the words Ronnie would have said, but you can definitely hear the sound in his voice nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you? yeah, you know yeah. exactly what it would sound like, and and that and that that's still kind of just a great feeling that he's left all of us with, and for me. Uh, I remember when they announced it, my thought was, I'm so glad that they finally got this right. And it's, it is a gladness tempered by the fact that it is incredibly bittersweet that he is not around to enjoy it, especially because you knew how much he wanted it. And you realized, as we did the statistical analysis, how much he deserved to get that induction. Oh and I, yeah. uh, I was living in New York at the time. Uh, And that summer, I went up to Cooperstown sometime in August, a few weeks after the induction ceremony. And I remember going in the Hall of Fame gallery, which is one of my favorite places in the world that I I just adore visiting and seeing Santo's plaque up there uh, on, on the corner of the newest inductees in the wall. And without even thinking about it, the first thought that entered my mind is you made it. You finally made it. And even though it was that, that bittersweet that, and knowing that you weren't there to, to appreciate it, there was still that almost sense of peace, seeing that inner peace, seeing that plaque for me, thinking that, yep, this does have something of a happy ending, at least in terms of history. And uh, from now, this day forward, people are going to visit this gallery. They're going to see this face. They're going to read the description about his career and know that Ron Santo really meant something to this game. And there, there is something to be said for that, even, even with the bittersweet tinge to that, again, the fact that he's not there. Uh, and, uh, it, I, again, with, with Miller, it's, uh, it's also has that, that complicated feel to it. Uh, but, again, getting it right by history, especially for a figure who is so important like Marvin Miller, that is, that is the most important thing to me. And uh, I think the last word on this is, is best left to one of his uh, former union lieutenants, Gene Orza who in the wake of the election, uh, I forget which media member he mentioned this to, but he said something along the lines of, at this point, it's no longer the Hall honoring Marvin Miller. It's Marvin Miller legitimizing the Hall of Fame. And I think that that's perfect. And that encapsulates Wow.
1: It exactly. Yeah, that's very well said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, let's jump back from that topic back into Cubs offseason. Uh, we hinted at this a little bit earlier that uh, we found out today that from Anthony Rizzo's agent – that uh, the Rizzo's agent told the media that the Cubs essentially told them they will not be negotiating the contract this winter. And a couple hours later, Jed Hoyer clarified on Chicago Radio that what actually happened was that they had brief discussions of kind of the borderline parameters of what a deal might look like, but something about the length disagreed with what they wanted at that point, so they kind of tabled it. So there has been talk, but it wasn't very productive talk. and. Jumping off of that and then bringing in their ongoing negotiations with Javi Baez to uh, to find some kind of extension with him, at this point, just as a fan, sign Javi or sign Rizzo. I just want to see a win at this point, this offseason, sometime soon. Just give me one win to hang my hat on and know that we're not going to be in the lurch for, with everybody in 2021. Is that similar to how you're feeling with those guys?
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's got to be something. There has got to be something. Um, And Javi Baez absolutely, without a doubt, has got to get extended this offseason. He has got to be a Cub for a good chunk, if not all, of his career. I feel the same way about Rizzo, but I think Rizzo is the type that he's a big boy. He is um, a team guy. He is somebody that... um, I don't think that he has hard feelings about it. So I think he's fine with waiting till next year because he knows that, you know, somebody like Baez is he is the face of the Chicago Cubs. I mean, honestly, let's think about, you know, the kind of exposure that, you know, we can get on marquee with Javi Baez, not just nationally internationally. He's just such a fun player to watch. He checks so many of the boxes. Rizzo is the guy. He is the captain. Hopefully this year they put a C on his chest. But I think in that sense he takes on a bit of responsibility of being the one that steps back and says, you know what, I am not the priority right now. Let's get the priorities taken care of. Um and I think I you know there's there's a lot of good first baseman and I think he knows that and he knows that you know as long as he can see it through he's going to be taken care of um hobby bias has got to get extended there's just no way around this we are right now like even just listening to this podcast this is kind of an overview of how everybody that's Cubs fans right now are feeling and some even worse <laughs> if you get on Twitter you can see oh, that gotcha. it's there people are depressed and sad and angry and something good has got to happen and if Mean, means, you know, extending hobby bias and not doing a damn other thing. I am here for it because to me, Javi is Chicago Cubs baseball. I mean, that's, I just, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine going a summer without him in a Cubs uniform. I just couldn't even imagine. He is somebody that um, just represents as a whole, you know, what I want that, what I want to and envision the Chicago comes to be. His energy, you know, his playfulness, how he can still be a kid and have fun and hustle and be a little crazy at times. But we don't want everybody to try the crazy because only hobby magic works. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's just one of those things where hobby has got to get done. And that's gotta, you know, if that's our win this season, I'll take it.
0: Yeah. It will be an incredible sense of relief whenever they eventually hopefully get hobby wrapped up for eight or nine years after this. And I'm glad you brought up Marquee too, because you would think that with the business side focusing so much on launching the Cubs TV channel and trying to get it onto as many cable systems as possible, that one of the most important aspects of that would be giving fans a reason to get excited about watching and a reason to, if there is some kind of mix or some kind of negotiating screw-up with Comcast, to actually want to email the cable company and say, "Hey, I want Marquee on my 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 uh, my package," uh, which sounds like the worst double entendre I've ever come up with. But nonetheless, uh, but yeah, if if you're going to be focusing so much of your business end on getting this network launched successfully, you <laughs> one of the first rules of showbiz, and even I'm dumb enough to know this is give people reasons to watch, and part of that is giving them the kind of players that they want to tune in every day to see. And nobody defines tuning in every day to see better than Javi Baez and everything he brings to the table.
1: I mean, you could not have said it better. He is exactly what baseball is dying for these days, and that is entertainment. That is um, you know, the reason that people will tune in every single day, you know, if you're not a baseball fan and you need something to be excited about, Javi Bias is going to give you one of those elements, you know, he's going to give you the crazy circus plays. He's going to give you the hustle. He's going to give you the, you know, this, the big, beautiful smile that, you know, is on his big, beautiful face. I mean, it's just, he is what Marquis is, was made for basically. And, um, you know, as Sarah and I have talked about this a couple of times that it's interesting to me that, you know, before the the Chris Bryant trade talks got so heated now in the offseason, you know, a couple months before the season was over, people were going back and forth with, well, do they trade Javi Baez or do they trade Chris Bryant? And, you know, obviously we don't want them to trade either. But if it came down to it, I believe both of us said Chris Bryant because Javi Baez is the international plug that you need. You know, if we're talking business and we're talking, you know, media dollars into a network, that, that Javi Baez is your package right there. That's your sales point. Chris Bryant is a great player. He does not have the pizzazz that Javi Baez has on the field. He just doesn't. And that's does that's going to be sparkles, your selling though. point. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely that. But he's just not the, you know, the crazy electric player on the field that Javi Baez is. And and I appreciate that. I mean, Chris Bryant is a workhorse. He is somebody that is talented and has put in the work and puts in the time and you know is- and, but at the same time, he's very vanilla. And I, I don't like saying that, but he is. You know, he is very vanilla when you put him up against somebody like Javi Baez. And th- that's not that's not a negative thing. That's not a bad thing. Because if you look at it, some people would actually say that's better. He's a low-risk player. You know, Javi Baez is more of a high-risk player. You know, he's he's trying to leg out a single into a double on a daily basis. So, and obviously that doesn't always work out well. so um, But that's also what people want to see baseball's got to speed up baseball needs to be more entertaining baseball needs to be this baseball needs to be that baseball wants to be what Javi Baez is to the game so um yeah when it comes down to it I think Marquis is going to rely heavily on players like Javi Baez to be successful and to to be a a multi-market um network and to be an international network you know because obviously the folks in you know Puerto Rico want to know how their boy is doing so
0: yeah that's that's so important for the Cubs who are You know, a national team, and I sure have international aspirations to to try to get, you know, Cubs merchandise in as many uh, territories and countries as possible. And I know Puerto Rico isn't a country, but you know what I mean. Uh, So, yeah, Uh, so, yeah, that's that's I guess what we're concluding here is that Puerto Rico is not a country. If there's one thing we can (laughs) leave you with. uh...
1: Hold on, I need to jot this down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's one to grow on for everybody who grew up in the 80s. So uh, I guess the to end this on a positive note, Andy Cruz Vanasek, uh, and I will ask you this question, and I'm going to lead into it in a weird way myself. But uh, you uh, have been a Cub fan in exile, uh, in the worst kind of exile, as you mentioned at the top. You are you are a St. Louis residence and Chicago Cub fan, which you are a damn saint, is what I'm saying. Uh <laughs> And how, how long have you uh, lived in St. Louis at this point?
1: So I've lived in St. Louis since August of 1997. So Ooh. over 22 years.
0: Uh, since I was in college, you've been in St. Louis. Man. Well,
1: I actually moved here for college. And I was I was actually going to say I've lived in St. Louis longer than I lived where I grew up, two hours west of Chicago. So, um, yeah. So I came here to play softball at uh, Webster University and um, they say, you know, St. Louis is a black hole and you never get out and they're not lying. So um, <laughs> here I am. Here I yeah. am. It's um, it's definitely a, a challenge, but, um, you know, I, my skin has gotten pretty darn thick and yeah, yeah, yeah. I've come up with some pretty original comebacks, which I have Good. stumped quite a few older men who thought that I was nothing but a lowly young lady who knew nothing about the sport. Uh Um, so I, there's definitely some fun moments. There was, you know, I love the fact that I live in a city and I do live in the city, um, South city to be exact, but I live literally 10 minutes from the ballpark. So when the Cubs are in town, you know, the company I work for by day has tickets. I get to go to a lot of baseball games more than I deserve probably. Um, And I get to see my team play and it's, it's fun. I mean, like I got to see the Cubs win the division in 2017 on, on Bush stadiums field, you know, and it's just such a, yeah, it's such an amazing feeling to be able to go and celebrate wins and the losses are bad, but you know, it, it, I'm always just so thankful that I get to see my team as often as I do. And, you know, in recent years, I've made it up to Chicago quite a bit too. So, um, you know, it's definitely a challenge and it's definitely a struggle, but it's also given me great character. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my kids are, um, I think pretty much split down the middle. I have one Cubs fan, one Cardinals fan, and one that's kind of undecided. So, but you know, it's fun. It's a, it's a good time. My husband and I never sit in the same room when we watch a Cubs Cardinals game because (laughs) we would be very mad at each other. Uh Um, but And I can't stand watching Cubs-Cardinals games with the Cardinals commentary. So I always just turn down the volume and listen to the radio on um, MLB at bat. So So um, there, there's that. But for the you know, I mean, I, I am a Cubs fan, die hard. The minute people know that, they don't give me any grief because they just know that, you know, I don't really back down from conversations if people try to talk smack to me. I definitely... I definitely come back with something because it's, yeah, Yeah. it's usually the casual fan that has more to say than anybody
0: else. Mm -hmm. Of course, because the casual fan just wants to talk shit and doesn't actually follow the game closely. Uh, Is the Cardinals TV broadcast any better now that Al Hrabowski is no longer doing the color? Because my impression was he was the worst anti-Cub of everybody employed by that team.
1: (laughs) Well, it's now... I mean, they switch off and on who's doing color. And sometimes it's Tim McCarver and um, Dan McLaughlin. Um, it's well, and what's funny, I'm glad you brought this up. I have a quick story. That's kind of funny. And I think you'll appreciate. Um, you do. Um, I, I'm i sorry. What's that?
0: Please tell. Yes.
1: Okay. So I was um, I follow a couple of local St. Louis media personnel and, and vice versa. They follow me as well on Twitter and I got a new follow from somebody who, I don't know, his bio was something like he would, worked at the newspaper, a radio station, and a TV station. I don't know. It didn't seem very legit. He had a few thousand followers, I think. So mm-hmm. followed me, I followed him back because just to kind of get an idea, and he posted something about how he couldn't believe that um, he was watching an Atlanta St. Louis game, and he couldn't believe how the Atlanta commentators and media people were talking so much crap about the Cardinals. And he's like, I've never once heard a cardinal announcer or commentator say anything negative about another team. And I was like, you can't be serious right now. (laughs) So I'm like, I I can't I can't sit back as a Cubs fan, St. Louis and read this and not say anything. So against my better judgment, I went ahead and went on there and I tagged Dan McLaughlin. I tagged um, Al Hrabowski. I tagged Frank Cusimano. Um somebody else and I said I have heard on multiple occasions at least these people talk so much crap about the Cubs. And I only know and remember this because I'm a Cubs fan in St. Louis. And um Dan McLaughlin responded to me <laughs> nice and said oh yeah i i do that oh yeah that's what i do and i was like really dan because i can pull up video footage of you doing it so um needless to say i got blocked by him and the original poster um shortly thereafter (laughs) but i'm like i can't i can't sit here and read this when i watch cardinals broadcast on the daily because that's what my TV is showing me. And you're talking smack about the Cubs, every opportunity you get. So sorry. I had to just come out and say something. And I felt bad about it later because I definitely didn't want to make enemies with Dan McLaughlin. But at the same time, I don't really care.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Blocked by Dan McLaughlin. Andy, I didn't think I could admire you anymore going into this, but uh, guess what? I do. So that is a bad (laughs) honor. That is delightful. Uh, So the last question I will ask you... I just I called him out. Yes, as you should. As you should. Call out that entire damn broadcast, as you say. Uh, The last question I will ask, and you, you, I'm guessing you probably already touched on what the answer is going to be. I will ask you the question. I'm going to then lead into it in a weird way. I'm going to ask, what's your favorite Cubs moment that you've seen in person at Bush Stadium? And I'm going to lead into it by telling you my biggest Cubs at Bush Stadium nightmare. Because I've only (laughs) been down... And this will give you time. time to, I, I assume uh, we know what it is at this point, but uh, but this will give you time to, to think of any any others that might spring to mind. But I've only been down to Bush for two road series uh, and the Cubs have won a grand total of one game in those series. So, hey, I got plenty of nightmares to choose from. But uh, the sweep that we went to see this year was bad enough back in mid or early June. But the first time I came down was in late July 2002, uh, a year where the Cardinals won the division and the Cubs were, you know, mediocre or worse. I think they lost upper 80 games that year or something like that. Uh, They lost the first game, won the second game, and then the third game was a Sunday nighter. And the Cubs jumped out to like a quick, quick big lead in that one. And that was one where they led by five runs going into the bottom of the ninth inning. And between, I think it was Kyle Farnsworth, and I definitely remember it was Antonio Alfonseca. They got a grand total of one out in that bottom of the ninth. And I just remember the the gradual bleeding as the Cardinals kept getting hit after hit after hit. And thinking they can't really blow a five-run lead like this, can they? I know this isn't a good team. And then Edgar Renteria, I remember crushing a walk-off that you knew as soon as it left the bat. Everybody, the 5,000 fans that were left in the stadium because Cardinal fans are Dodger fans in disguise when it comes to leaving games early, lost their shit. And I remember Alfonseca as Renteria is running around the bases and the big scrum of players is waiting for him at the plate. Alfonseca just standing at the mound, looking forlornly at the left field wall, and I remember just standing there yelling, "Get off the mound! Get off the mound!" <laughs> And then my dad and I had to leave old Bush Stadium going down the ramps from the upper deck. And you heard all the gomers beeping their horns as they were leaving the parking garages. (laughs) And my final memory of that night is walking back to our hotel. We were staying at the right at the river's edge, the old Adams Mark in downtown St. Louis. And I remember a father turning to what couldn't have been more than a seven or eight year old kid. And the kid had a Cubs hat on, the father had a Cardinals hat on, and the father just started talking smack and talking shit to his kid. Yeah. (laughs) And nothing better encapsulated what being a Cub fan and growing up a Cub fan in St. Louis had to feel like than that moment. But yeah, that was my baptism in what it was like watching a game in St. Louis.
1: My goodness. Yeah. So um, I have a couple moments in in Bush – that stand out to me um, definitely winning the the division on their soil was by far the one that is like, gives me chills still to this day. That's it's good. just something that you don't get to witness every day and let alone doing it on someone else's field. And on top of that, a place where I am treated you know, badly because I'm a Cubs fan. I'm treated like less of a human in some situations because I am a Cubs fan. So that was a lot of, you know, vindication right there. And a lot of, um, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to laugh and point at everyone and just, you know, but that's, that's not who I am. I don't, I don't do stuff like that. So that was, that was nice. That was good. I liked that. Um, there was a couple other times that are extremely shallow why they stand out to me but I I really appreciated these. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely. I went with two of my high <laughs> two of my high school friends came down to St. Louis who they both live in Wisconsin now and um, we had my company seats which are literally like do you remember the nacho the nacho incident oh, yeah. at Bush? So They're literally those seats. Yes. So Mm -hmm. literally like the row behind Nacho Man is my company seat. So we were sitting there, the three of us. Um, My husband was supposed to go with us, but he stayed behind. And um, there was a group of women, older women, um, that were like cackling and laughing and stuff. And like we kind of felt like they were talking about us. We couldn't tell. They all had Cardinals shirts on obviously and we all had cub stuff on so we didn't really pay much attention and just kind of you know went about our way finally about the sixth inning one of the ladies tapped my girlfriend on the shoulder and she like whispered something to her and my girlfriend just looks at me with these big eyes and we're like oh okay and so she leans over and she's like she wants to know which player which players were married to they thought we were players wives i was so excited oh god i was so excited i was like yeah, pretend go I was, along with. It. I was like, well, David Ross was catching, so I was like, based on my age, I should probably be married to David Ross because <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> this is this is weird. I'm like 40 years old. I can't be married to like Javi Baez, you know. I mean, uh-huh. I could, but that would yeah, be a that weird. So. so, that was one of my that was one of my one of my highlights for sure. And then the other one was. um I got to go a couple years back, I want to say it was 2017, I believe, when it was opening day at Bush, and it was Cubs versus Cardinals on Sunday Night Baseball. And I got tickets to that game from a friend who happens to be a well-known media personality here in St. Louis. So they were really good seats. Mm -hmm. We were like probably 10 rows off the field next to the Cubs dugout, so Um, we get there right when the gates open, we sit in our seats. It's kind of a chilly night. We're watching everybody go back and forth. Um, so (laughs) CJ is a pitcher for the Cubs and he's warming up and he keeps walking back and forth and keeps walking back and forth. And finally he walks by and he's got like two balls in his glove and he hands a ball to the kid right there in the first row. And then, and I was sick and not feeling good. And I probably shouldn't have been there anyways, but I'm like, it's opening night. I can't miss this. So he holds the ball up like to throw it. And I just kind of waved And I'm, like, ten rows back, and there's lots of people down in, like, the first four rows. He threw it to me, and I caught it. And I was like, yeah. I was like, it was really cool. I'm like, he didn't have to do that. I mean, because we were kind of, like, the only ones sitting in our seats at that point because it was really early on. And it was just a really cool moment. Like, I was so stoked, and it definitely made me feel better (laughs) being that I was there and felt like crap. And I had this ball thrown to me by, you know, CJ Edwards. And it was just, it was a, it was a really cool moment. So those, those are my moments that stand out at Bush.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. You, you had a baseball thrown to you by not just a world champion, but the man who got the first two outs in the greatest 10th inning ever in baseball history. And yes. that, Oh, and that's I so still great. have that ball. Yes. 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 All right. Uh, Andy Cruz Vanasek, you have put a smile on my face for the past hour and boy, did I need it. So thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yay. Thank you. You as well. I needed that laugh. So I appreciate it. Great. Thank you.
0: Yes. It's great to talk to you always. Look forward to seeing you soon.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Ken.